Welcome to Unequal Worlds, an inequality research podcast produced by the Global Research Program on Inequality and brought to you by the University of Bergen and International Science Council. In this podcast, we aim to explore and illuminate all aspects of global inequality and to investigate the possible ways of addressing these inequalities. Thank you for joining us. Success can only really be determined when we answer the question of who benefits from these technologies. This episode of Unequal Worlds is a part of our mini-series entitled Inequality in the Post-Pandemic City. This mini-series probes how the effects of the pandemic are impacting people and communities, particularly in relation to economic, political, social, cultural, environmental and knowledge-based inequalities. For more contributions in this mini-series, please visit our website. My name is Elina Trochenko and I'm the Advisor and Research Coordinator at GRIP. The topic that we'll be covering today is smart cities. Smart cities with their digital technological innovations and application of information technologies are argued to be more sustainable, resilient, efficient, and better able to respond to changing circumstances and challenges. But what does this narrative of technological development and smart cities actually entail? How have smart cities dealt with COVID crisis? And what can we learn from all this? To discuss and address these issues, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jadib Gupta. Dr. Jadib Gupta is fellow of the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex and leads the Cities and Sustainable Infrastructure Portfolio of the Global Challenges Research Fund. Jadib also acts as champion for official development assistance research on the built environment on behalf of the UK Research and Innovation. Jadib's research has been funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, UK Department for International Development, and the European Commission, among others. Jadib uses multidisciplinary approaches to understand the material, temporal, political, and technological aspects of urban informality. His research seeks to foreground voices and everyday experiences of the most marginalized urban residents. Welcome, Jadib, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Elena. So let me start by asking a more general question about what exactly the idea of smart cities entail, as smart cities discourse represents a particular narrative and a vision of sustainable urban futures. Could you please comment on the contemporary smart city discourse and how that relates to the existing inequalities? Sure, Elena. And again, uh, wonderful to be speaking to you uh, at this time. Uh, and let me uh, respond to your question uh, in relation directly to the uh, situation we find ourselves in, in terms of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, you know, disease control uh, has always been a key consideration in city making. And in terms of your question, there are currently competing visions um, of um, smartness or indeed infrastructural regimes that are being employed uh, in, smart, in the smart city space. So in a relatively short period of time, uh, COVID-19 has uh, quite noticeably repurposed urban technologies um, and institutions, even organizations and, and people uh, in their efforts to um, manage and mitigate public health crisis. And this is quite important in our understanding of what a smart city is at the moment. Uh, 
So there's competing visions, as I say. You can have, on the one hand, technologically um, enhanced urban governance, right? You can take a bottom-up, uh, perhaps a human-centered approach in which citizens govern uh, what data is collected, for what purposes is, is it is collected, or uh, a smart city might take a different approach uh, and prioritize surveillance uh, in which artificial intelligence, for example, provides uh, a, a panoptic view uh, for uh, the purposes of surveillance. Now, at, at either end of this spectrum, uh, data used for decision-making in cities can reflect uh, the structural inequalities that uh, exist uh, in the city. And so the resulting decisions that are made are likely to reproduce inequalities, uh, often at speed, at scale, uh, and through automated processes, increasingly through, uh, I suppose, automated processes. So in my view, uh, smart city narratives that you asked about are uh, understood in a sense that they are driving us towards centralization, but that in some way, uh, these smart city visions, they stand in uh, contention with a, a simultaneous uh, proliferation of frugal innovation uh, that's happening on the, on the part of citizens, but also firms and consumers and governments, uh, and particularly so in developing country contexts that, that I spent time researching. So uh, the impacts of the pandemic and the public health measures taken in response on urban futures uh, need to be taken into account when we try and understand and explain what uh, uh, smartness or what a smart city is. Thank you. And um, you already mentioned this technological aspect of, of uh, smart cities. So turning to that and to our contemporary situation of the still ongoing pandemic, um, technological solutions have been an important part of government strategies in tackling the COVID-19 pandemic, both with regards to dealing with the pandemic and in supporting the daily lives of citizens in times of lockdowns. And how have smart cities tackled the pandemic in comparison to other cities and what insights can be drawn from these experiences? That's, a, that's an important question, uh, Elena. I mean, I see uh, digital responses to the pandemic um, can be sort of put into three broad categories. Right? So you have firstly uh, solutions for effective contact tracing, right? This is responding to the need to track transmission faster and indeed better than traditional systems of disease reporting. The second category of solutions are for disaster responder capacity to improve or adapt uh, or invest in medical services, testing and protective gear. Uh, and lastly, uh, I suppose early warning systems, uh, indeed also technologies to facilitate uh, quarantine and social control. Uh, so now in response to your question, you know, I might reel off a whole series of examples of the technologies that have worked, right? From contactless payments to remote uh, working to remote learning, uh, I suppose even 3D printing at speed um, using use of robots in, in healthcare. However, uh, it is really difficult to say what has worked well, right? Because we are still going through this pandemic. Uh, still experiencing the direct impacts of the disease 
uh, and the indirect impacts uh, partly caused by the public health measures put in place. But it is also complicated because it really depends on what metrics we use for success, to measure success, right? Is success explicitly related to the direct health impacts? For example, to reduce transmission, hospitalization, uh, or indeed to reduce the, um, the case fatality ratios? Or are we more concerned about secondary impacts like enabling social and welfare support, uh, longer term care, facilitating jobs and livelihood opportunities? Most importantly, you know, success can only really be determined when we answer the question of who benefits from these technologies and who has been left out or could not access because of sociopolitical or economic marginalization. Right. Um, ultimately, I suppose it seems clear that these smart technologies alone cannot uh, achieve success for both the direct and on the secondary fronts. So it's also important to consider um, institutional and sociopolitical aspects of COVID-19 response. And you already have mentioned some of this um, maybe criticism of yeah for whom the solutions work. Um, so there has also been a certain line of critique addressed towards the smart city discourse um, and the storyline of technology enabled urban development has been criticized for being adapted in neoliberal urban policies, promoting technocratic governance and for increasing the technological and digital divide that has been become even more apparent with the pandemic. So could you please comment on this line of critique and what is your take on that or, or response to it? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with this critique. And, and in fact, you know, I've, I've become very comfortable being termed a pessimist when it comes to recognizing the kinds of transformations that have been triggered by the pandemic. As, as I see it, there still remains a fundamental gap between the technological solutions that are being suggested, that are being implemented and whether these solutions actually contribute to an inclusive, resilient, uh, sustainable response from the perspective of economically and socially disadvantaged urban residents. Right? We see that tech-based responses are, are often quite uncritical or indeed unnuanced uh, in relation to these techno-utopian understandings of what are fundamentally deeply unequal relationships but at the same time, uh, these uh, techno solutions or, or, or techno narratives are an easy sell, particularly to those who have access to digital infrastructures and therefore stand to benefit from technological interventions. And, you know, from my view, these solutions often serve as an illusion for meaningful local action when they're actually not implementing um, tangible actions uh, that affect people's everyday lives. Now, app-based track and trace solutions uh, proposed in a variety of countries. Now I know there's a whole range of uh, solutions that are offered in this space are indeed an example of this illusion or illusory action, right? So it is important, I'm agreeing that it is important uh, to track disease vectors. And it, it is no doubt uh, a critical part of COVID response. Um, but there, there are several uh, socio-technical issues here. So first, 
these interventions uh, or these app-based interventions mistakenly assume an equality of access to digital infrastructures, when in fact, we know that these infrastructures are very gendered, they're very equal, right? Across low and middle-income countries, women are 20% uh, less likely uh, than men to own a smartphone or use mobile mobile internet. Uh, and this gender gap is worse when you look specifically at low income areas or informal settlements where women are 50% less likely to be connected or indeed a third less likely to use a smartphone. A second issue is that these, this track and trace app-based approach assumes that uh, the disease is spread through contact resulting from voluntary movement alone, right? And that people do not live in overcrowded dwellings and can therefore easily and voluntarily be isolated once identified. So th this completely uh, disregards uh, the, the compulsory nature of the economic and sociocultural relationships that uh, indeed force people to continue living, to continue working in precarious locations, despite the risk of contracting or spreading the disease. So track and trace approaches, I suppose, are also uh, severely um, uh, misunderstanding the magnitude of involuntary movement of people who are forced uh, by authorities or by landlords into living or working uh, in high-risk situations. That's a very important uh, point to make that I, I also see is often missing. But um, as you and your work have been focusing on inclusive and safe urban environments, um, what do you think is missing in the pandemic response to prevent further exacerbation of the already existing inequalities? You have already mentioned some of the points now, but maybe you want to expand on that. Absolutely, and, and, and you raise a, uh, a set of issues that's particularly close to my heart, and I've been researching um, the incidence of violence and indeed violence mitigation in cities for, for a long time now. So this is uh, an extremely important question, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I'll continue to be a little bit pessimistic in this re reply as well. Uh, because I see that the top-down regimes to control urban space, right, lockdown, quarantine, uh, social and physical isolation and distancing, uh, have not in fact stemmed the experience of violence in public areas. Right? Some experiences of violence have dramatically intensified. Uh, others have changed in unexpected ways. You know, and and Michelle Bachelet, the um, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has noted uh, an alarming rise in police brutality, in civil rights violations under the guise of uh, exceptional or emergency or, in, or indeed technical measures uh, in response to COVID-19. So the big emerging lessons from the security sector that I see include in utmost the need for uh, humane interventions that are tuned to the, the sorts of gendered and localized and rapidly evolving risks and vulnerabilities that, that people are facing. Um, the, the enforcement of lockdown and social distancing measures uh, without undue persecution, right, particularly of informal and potentially stigmatized livelihoods is also a, a key lesson. And for the safety uh, in, in cities to be implemented, uh, I suppose at a city scale uh, and through integrated responses rather than uh, looking at, at these issues in, in siloed. But uh, Elena, there's a, uh, there's a subtle point that I want to make here. Uh, and that is 
you know, while COVID-19, or, or I would not term COVID-19 as a crisis of policing or of security provision, because it's a public health crisis with serious safety, security, and law enforcement implications. But how the police and security sector have responded to these implications is unfortunately um, predominantly in keeping with long-standing uh, and structural problems with this sector. Right? So far from being uh, transformative, uh, we see the pandemic has further entrenched some structural problems. Right? So we can talk of, um, of violence of the pandemic, uh, and, and, and by this I mean violence that is in some way uh, in some direct or, or perhaps indirect way been caused or reshaped by the pandemic. Um, and of course, I don't see this violence occur exactly aligned uh, spatially or temporally to the pandemic, right? Um, so on, on the one hand, I very much expect the trajectory of this type of violence to be long lasting, uh, particularly for subaltern groups, uh, marginalized um, groups. Um, and in some way amplified beyond the pandemic by unequal infrastructural uh, issues, the, the ones we've mentioned uh, through labor, caste and class relationships in, in, the, in the city. On the other, you know, the subaltern experiences of violence in, in the pandemic or of the pandemic thus far have really not been exceptional, but have been actually sustained within everyday negotiations, within other power relationships within the city that have predated the pandemic that people have been experiencing for a long time. And so exceptionalizing the experience of violence during the pandemic actually serves to silence past histories and, and perhaps even disenfranchises um, long-standing struggles for rights in the city. So how we interpret the experience of violence during lockdown needs to really engage the changing nature of these infrastructural regimes uh, as they seek to control urban space and as subaltern groups continue to mobilize and continue to advocate in, in new ways. And, and lastly, Elena, it, it's quite important that we also understand uh, the safety and security implications as they have unfolded through the pandemic um, in light of the fear, the trauma, anxiety, and indeed heightened conflict experienced by the police and service providers, officials, community members alike, right? Everyone is experiencing these issues. Indeed, the lack of adequate resources and appropriate capabilities amongst the police uh, continues to be a serious challenge that, that's uh, riddled actually not just the police, but across private security agencies as well. And this is these types of structural issues um, have really led to um, uh, inequalities and, and the experience of violence being uh, either extenuated uh, or dramatically changed. Yes, there are many lessons to take from this and, and um, we see along the whole line how the structural inequalities are really, really being highlighted in, in this period. Um, but in my final question, or with my final question, I um, would like to kind of relate to what we can expect in future. So what might be the long-term implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for the urban environments, smart cities, and, and the future of urban life in general? What are your thoughts on this? So I'm going to, I'm going to try and be at least a little bit optimistic here, uh, because I think there is, a, there is some degree of optimism, optimism to be had about the future. Uh, but before that, I, I suppose I, I must reiterate that in the long run, I don't see COVID 
the COVID-19 experience itself to be any kind of uh, equalizer or, or transformative experience. And indeed, it is a shock on existing uh, city systems uh, and infrastructures, and therefore it has led to an amplification of pre-existing inequalities. Um, but if you're thinking about the global kind of grand challenges like climate change, uh, like poverty, like inequality, like conflict, war and violence, uh, each of these challenges is in some way intensified in cities or because of the built environment. But equally, the solutions to these grand challenges are likely to be found in cities. Uh, indeed, you know, I would argue they must be found in cities if our way of life, which is uh, increasingly urbanized, is to thrive. So even if I feel that uh, COVID-19 is not going to be the trigger for some sort of positive or transformative uh, urban revolution uh, that we hope it, it will be, and, and I do sincerely hope it will be, but I feel what it has done is shone a bright light on the things we should be doing to truly make our cities smart. Right? Uh, what are these things? So making cities safe in the ways that I've spoken about. Uh, make sure that cities prioritize water and the provision of sanitation. Uh, make sure cities invest in urban public health infrastructures. Uh, make sure that cities make housing affordable and adequate, make jobs accessible with rights for workers. And that eventually cities are places where everyone feels welcome. Right? Uh, now, of course, we've known all of this for a very long time. Right? This, isn't, uh, this isn't new science that I'm sharing with you. I only hope that the pandemic has shown us what will happen repeatedly if we don't learn from our mistakes. And on that hopeful note, I would like to thank you so much for the insightful talk and for sharing your ideas and thoughts and, and for joining us. Thank you, Jedi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to follow GRIP on social media and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Links to these, as well as for research mentioned in this episode, can be found in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Global Research Programme on Inequality and brought to you by the University of Bergen and the International Science Council. Thank you for listening.